Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The sort of sub-story of this whole thing for us has been two headlines. One is constantly trying to increase our capacity as much as possible. And the other is, um, in the meantime, trying to make sure that every dose of Purell hand sanitizer is getting to the people who need it the very most in that moment. And so uh, having more rooms to, to work through both of those challenges has been constant for us. Get this. The person I sat next to in business school is now the CEO of the maker of Purell. I've been so eager to know what this unprecedented year has been like for her. Did she ever see it coming? How do you ramp up production of something whose demand is essentially infinite? What does she wish she had known? And what does she wish consumers would know now? Do stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Rate us and follow us. We'll be coming soon to WERA 96.7 FM in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., so do look out for us. Joining me from Akron, Ohio, is Carrie Jarrows, president and CEO of Gojo Industries, maker of Purell, which is pretty much synonymous with hand sanitizer. Uh, Purell has gone from a couple hundred million doses of hand sanitizer made a week to a billion a week. Now, with a new capacity expansion in the wake of this pandemic, uh, a billion doses a day is what you guys are planning on. How are you? I'm great, Robin. It's so nice to to hear your voice and to connect with you. And, um, you know, I'm making as much Purell as I can, Robin. That's what I'm doing. This is the way my head works is I'm thinking back to like I'm, I'm scouring around for companies and everything. And you and I have kept in touch since business school. Uh, we graduated 15 years ago. But I recall sitting next to you in business school and in operations classes. And, and you as a consultant might have been fascinated by it, but it intimidated me. And if I think there's one case study on operations and having to ramp up production in a completely blindsiding environment, it must be Purell. And lo and behold, Carrie Jarrows, who sat next to me in business school, is the CEO of the maker of Purell. So how does that work? So Robin, you are right. Uh, This year has been a study in operations and specifically a study in ramping up capacity. Um, You know, the the pandemic uh, hit about two weeks into my tenure as CEO. And uh, the good news is that I uh, wasn't alone. Uh, We have a model here of molecular leadership. So there were all kinds of really competent people uh, in and around uh, Gojo who uh, all came together to figure out what to do about this. So we saw about a 10x overnight uh, demand jump in our bottles first at retail. And uh, probably that actually was more like infinite, but it manifested itself immediately as about 10x. And everything else followed pretty quickly after that from our refills to our stands. Um, And so, uh, you know, we did what anybody would do in that situation. We figured out how to knock down one constraint at a time. Uh, First and foremost, we turned on manufacturing 24-7. We had been at two shifts a day, five days a week, and we went to three shifts a day, seven days a week. And then the next constraint um, pretty immediately after that uh, was labor. And so we've been doing all kinds of things to bring on as many team members as we can. Uh, We have 175 openings right now. So if you have anybody who's looking to uh, get involved in the Purell effort, please send them our way. And um, after that, the constraint was components and raw materials. So we've done all kinds of things uh, on that dimension, and I can talk more about that if you're interested. Well, hold up, slow down, yeah. slow down. Let me let me let me call it let me call it T. Sure. Here. Um, 
Go back to when you knew you were going to become CEO of this company. I mean, uh, was it around New Year's Eve? Was it around the new year that you knew something was in store? Uh, so I was named CEO uh, at the beginning of November uh, for a January first uh, for a January first start date. Okay, and then fast forward into the year with your planning ahead in your mind's eye at night. What were what were kind of the the mundane old normal of Purell going back to pre pandemic? What was in store? Sure. So like any good uh, growth company. We had a plan for the year that included uh, continuing to uh, invest in all kinds of longer-term strategic initiatives and at the same time achieve a pretty uh, ambitious budget. And so we came into the year with a plan and we were uh, up and running. Uh, you know, I think we started on like January 4th or something this year when the, when the holidays were over. And we were off and running a couple days into that incredibly ambitious and exciting plan for the year. And, um, you know, we have, a, we have a team that runs in the background all the time at Gojo uh, called our Detect and Alert team. And they're always looking for discontinuities like uh, COVID, uh, though rarely do we find anything quite that big. And so they alerted us uh, that something was happening. There was something happening that we needed to keep our eyes on, that there were illnesses in China uh, and that then those illnesses were spreading uh, and uh, that we needed to be ready for something. Now, time out. So going back to your experience with the company, how long have you been at the company? So I've been uh, in and around Gojo since 2014 mm -hmm. in various roles. So uh, in 2016, I became chief strategy officer and had responsibility for strategy and marketing and product management. And then in 2018, mm -hmm. I became COO. And then, uh, it, as I said, last November, uh, we announced that I would become CEO in January. So where does a pandemic of this scale fit into the grand scheme of things? I mean, in all sorts of parlance, they call it the black swan, tail risk. You know, when a once in a hundred year thing happened, uh, you and I started business school when people were, were had to delay matriculation in 2003 because of SARS, right? Yes. And that, you know, the United States largely dodged that and, and Ebola and the Zika virus and everything else that happened. Where does something like this fit in the grand scheme of planning? I mean, you could go back and wear your COO hat or your consultant or strategist hat. Sure. So at Gojo, we're, uh, we are no stranger to dealing with surges that come out of uh, unexpected illness. Um, so it, every year, there's always a possibility of a pretty significant surge from flu. Um, the various illnesses you mentioned, so SARS, H1N1, Ebola, all of those illnesses in the past have also caused surges. H1N1 was the most significant um, and also had a very precipitous start for us. But uh, the real difference here is the duration and magnitude. So, uh, so COVID has been much more substantial in terms of the uh, magnitude of the surge and, um, and has been much, much more substantial in terms of the duration, Robin. And I want you to take me to that time, whether it was at the end of February, beginning of March, we were getting whispers about this mysterious persistent flu out of Wuhan, China, uh, really at the end of the year and to start the year. But when did the severity of this, the OMG factor hit you? For me, it was the night that I was watching that the NBA decided to punt on the season and schools, uh, universities left and right were, were just effectively going remote at best for the balance of the year. Yeah, so I would say that um, there have been a number of those moments when I think we've had an aha around either the severity or the duration. Uh, the couple that I'll call out are, first of all, um, in February, when Italy really started to have significant issues. Um, and I think it was clear that, that this was no longer isolated in China. So I think that was one. Um, I think another moment was when the WHO uh, declared it an, uh, a health emergency. 
uh, that was a really big moment. And I think we knew when that happened that this was, uh, you know, that this was not just a temporary situation, but that it was going to be something much longer. So, Carrie, is there something approximating a war room at Gojo Purell headquarters in Akron or, or some sort of crack team that you get together? You talk about your, uh, I don't know, what the, the molecular team or the team that's there with alerts. Is there a map, a heat map of the globe? Can you let us into that world? Sure, Robin. So there have been uh, various incarnations of a war room over the course of this pandemic. Uh, at the beginning, the day that we made the decision to go to 24-7 manufacturing, um, we were sitting in a conference room with a number of our supply chain leaders and a couple folks from our commercial business. And so that was really the war room that day. And then pretty immediately, we moved into another war room, uh, 3 South 30, for those of you who love Gojo Plaza, uh, where we would meet every day for hours and figure out what... Uh, how to allocate the scarce product. So, you know, the the sort of sub-story of this whole thing for us has been two headlines. One is constantly trying to increase our capacity as much as possible. And the other is, um, in the meantime, trying to make sure that every dose of Purell hand sanitizer is getting to the people who need it the very most in that moment. And so uh, having more rooms to, to work through both of those challenges has been constant for us. Walk me through the history of the company. I understand it's 75 years old, but I, I, I believe that it was only in our kind of consciousness, uh, antibacterial and Purell, Purell being a part of the, 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 the lexicon, the consumer lexicon like Kleenex or Xerox for maybe 10 or 15 years. Yeah, so Gojo, uh, as you said, is 75 years old. Um, our story really began uh, in Akron during World War II. So Goldie Lippmann was a supervisor in one of the rubber factories here uh, that was manufacturing life rafts and rubber products for the war effort. And she and her co-workers there discovered how hard it was to get their hands clean after a day's work. So they had carbon black and grease on their hands. And the men who had worked in the rubber factories before used to dip their hands in chemicals like kerosene or benzene uh, to get off the graphite, the carbon black, the grease. And the women... Uh, looked at this idea and said, this seems crazy. I'm not dipping my hands in kerosene and benzene. And so Goldie uh, and her husband, Jerry, who had been a cookie salesman, set out to find a, a better solution. And so I won't take you through the whole story, but uh, Jerry ended up walking the halls at Kent State University looking for a chemist to help him develop a, a hand cleaner that would be safe for skin, uh, that didn't require washing your hands underwater because there was no water available uh, where these folks were leaving the factories. And they ended up uh, developing this, this first sort of one-step uh, hand cleaner. And that's where, uh, where Gojo really started. I have seen it at locations. I've seen it at a lot of service stations for decades. I've seen them at fast food places uh, where it's just a lot easier if you're working an assembly line in the back, especially you know at, at, at taco places before they were using gloves and the like. And I think I've seen it at, at, at supermarkets like Wegmans for at least 25 years. Yeah, so, um, so that first product was original waterless cream cleaner, and that was really for heavy-duty applications, like in factories. And Gojo is still a beloved uh, manufacturer of those heavy-duty hand cleaners. Um, and then Purell was invented in the late 80s, and it was invented in response to a fast food chain looking for a way to help uh, workers clean their hands when they were away from soap and water. And so, um, you know, Purell is sort of, that's where the story started, but in fact, it was healthcare where really the Purell brand and, and instant hand sanitizer took off. And so the 90s were all about the growth of Purell uh, in healthcare, uh, as well as in the consumer market. Now, when I look at a company like this and realize that it still retains its family roots and the culture and everything, you know the massive 
uh, uh, consumer goods conglomerates, the Unilevers, the Procter and Gamble's, the Colgate Palmolives. What, I mean, did they ever see this coming? Did they plan or did they ever make a run at Purell to kind of bolt on the goodwill and the brand experience? Because certainly, and we'll get into this, everybody has been reinventing themselves into a hand sanitizer company as well over the past seven, eight months. So, Robin, you know, I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing the market as a consumer like you are. Uh, what I know is that uh, folks like Unilever appear to be making a push into the space. Uh, many of you have seen suave uh, hand sanitizer uh, sprays and various things at the grocery store. Um, there are also, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, upstart hand sanitizer makers. Um, what I will tell you as a friend uh, is that uh, a lot of those hand sanitizers um, are, uh, are are not formulated the way ours is, and they're not made uh, with, with the same kind of manufacturing uh, practices, and they're not based in science. So um, the FDA has actually banned, I think, 155 brands of hand sanitizer at this point uh, because uh, they either were ineffective, uh, they didn't have the right amount of alcohol in them, uh, or they contained actually poisonous ingredients. So it's it's sort of been the Wild West for the last six months, and that's why we are pushing as hard and fast as we can to make sure that everybody who wants hand sanitizer can actually get Purell because it's the best. If I could be a little crass for a second, I, I did terribly in chemistry in high school, and that's where I left it, and orgo kind of just destroyed me. But why isn't this as simple as just powerful rubbing alcohol or wood alcohol with uh, glycerin or some sort of uh, emulsifier? So wood alcohol is actually poisonous for humans, so I think you probably mean ethanol. Um, ethanol, uh, you know, is what is the active ingredient in Purell hand sanitizer and in many of these other hand sanitizers you're seeing. Um, but a lot goes into the formulation of our product. So um, it both has to be safe and effective. Um, and then on the third dimension, it needs to be a product that people enjoy le- using and that leaves their skin feeling um, intact and safe and healthy and moist. So there's a lot of science and a lot of know-how that goes into formulating a product that's like Purell that really delivers on all three of those dimensions. It's safe, it's effective, and it's enjoyable to use and leaves your hands feeling uh, feeling really safe and healthy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Carrie Jaros. She's president and CEO of Gojo Industries, maker of Purell products, which was started 75 years ago in Akron. It was a, a product uh, that emerged during World War II or some of the uh, you know, the manufacturing and cleanliness exigencies of World War II. I would like to bring up this headline, which I think captures a lot of the national zeitgeist uh, in this pandemic year of 2020. It's almost like something you can expect to see you guys in SNL or something. There is a headline in Rolling Stone that you surely saw that said, (laughs) why is Purell so damn expensive and what's the company doing about it? After being sold out for months, Purell hand sanitizer and wipes are seemingly back in stock, but at obviously inflated prices. I never imagined, Carrie, that for all the crazy things that happened this year, you guys would become kind of as rare as a first series garbage pail kid in stores. Indeed, Robin. Um, so one of the things we've joked about is that um, our bottle has always been thought of in, uh, as a gem. It's this beautiful gem shape, uh, but we never, uh, you know, we never wanted nor expected Purell to be like a diamond. Um, I know this because you sat next to me in business school. You are one smart guy who understands economics. And so the answer to the question that rolling... But I, I, I clearly didn't understand wood alcohol, but go ahead. <laughs> that's me. okay. That's okay. So... Um, the, you know, the simple answer to the question that I think Rolling Stone raised 
perhaps a little tongue in cheek, um, is that um, the reason Purell was so expensive during this uh, pandemic is because of the dynamic of supply and demand. So, so, so the most important thing I'll tell you first is that we have not raised prices one penny uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So our our pricing uh, into wholesalers and retail retailers has not increased a penny. That's the most important thing for me to tell you. And that's because uh, we want to make sure that Purell is accessible and available to people who need it. Um, but at the end of the day, you and I both know that price is often based on the dynamic between supply and demand. And in a world of infinite demand and supply that is not infinite, price increases. And so that's what we saw here. So is it a nightmare situation, infinite demand? That's where I would kind of think back if I had told you you're looking into your crystal ball for 2020 and you're going to have a scenario by by spring and summer where the demand for your product is literally infinite. As much as you make will get snapped up by all of civilization. Yeah. So Robin, if you had offered me infinite demand and I hadn't thought it through, I might have said, boy, that sounds like a really great situation. Uh, but I'm going to take you back to our Gojo values uh, and our Gojo purpose. So our Gojo purpose is saving lives and making life better through well-being solutions. And our Gojo values include things like uh, we care for ourselves and others, and uh, we uphold the essential dignity of all people. And so when you have a purpose and values like that, and there are people who really want your product because it is a key part of keeping themselves healthy and well, and you can't give it to every single one of those people, it feels terrible. Mm. So talk me through uh, the overtures that were made to you by other companies or people that clearly realized that there was a huge – bizarre things happen in this. When everybody realized there was a pandemic, they stripped the grocery shelves bare of, I remember, toilet paper, all manner of hand sanitizer, soap. Uh, you guys were definitely in the limelight, and there must have been approaches from private equity, from other companies, from various strategists. This is how you ramp up production vastly in an emergency situation. So, Robin, I would tell you that uh, most of the people who were knocking on our door over the last eight months uh, were people just trying to get access to product. Um, and I think they were, you know, the vast majority of those people were trying to do it uh, for really good reasons. They had customers themselves uh, who really needed the product. Um, what I will tell you is um, we spent the vast majority of our time trying to figure out how to actually mobilize against that need. Um, and I, I, as I said, there were sort of three steps. The first step was maximizing our output. Uh, the second step was making sure we had access to components and raw materials. And the third step was really uh, increasing our capacity over time uh, through several hundred million dollars of capital investment. And we're still very much in the middle of that right now. I see one of your counterparts in the Wall Street Journal, Clorox's new CEO, Linda Rendell, the headline says, is racing to keep wipes on store shelves. To take you back to business school and Professor Stephen Wheelwright's technology and operations management class, what carry is the bottleneck? What is preventing you guys from making the world happy and providing them with all the wipes? I mean, they used to give out your wipes at Chick-fil-A left and right. They were very generous with them. Now they're asking you if you're sure you need them at all because they have a shortage of them. Sure. So, uh, you know, wipes is not our uh, the vast majority of our business, uh, but, but there is a global shortage of substrate for wipes. So um, I'm sure what... What is a substrate? Substrate is the material that, it, uh, that is the wipe. 
So the non-woven material uh, that is the wipe that you think of, there's a, a global shortage of that substrate. Uh, it's temporary, uh, like, like everything else. Uh, there are folks racing to uh, put in more capacity for substrate, uh, but there is a global shortage. And then also, just like we're experiencing in the categories that are really uh, at our core, um, there has been tremendous demand for uh, the converters who actually turn, uh, you know, rolls of substrate into wipes uh, by cutting and wetting them. Uh, you know, those folks are all at capacity also. And so the whole supply chain is really taxed, Robin. So that's very interesting. You would think, again, to an untrained eye, that it's not just a matter of ordering tons and tons of pre-cut paper towels and soaking them in your product, which is probably sitting in these oceans or these vats. You're talking about second or third order effects where the cutting equipment, there's such an up, there's such an upsurge in demand globally for wipes that you're not even able to procure the capital equipment. There must be a, a year or two lag to it. Yeah, absolutely, Robin. So I was thinking about this, uh, about the exercise that your listeners could go through with any industry, thinking about um, the moment when they get the product and then almost the fishbone that goes back in time to say, what are all the inputs that go into that product? And then the inputs that go into the inputs. And you can go back so many branches through that tree. Um, I'll give you an analogy from another uh, sector. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there is also uh, a shortage of pickles right now. And uh, mm. I was asking someone recently about this pickle shortage who comes from the uh, food world. And he told me that uh, we essentially, as Americans, had eaten up all of the cucumbers that had been grown for pickles for the entire year by the end of May. So all of the cucumbers that had been produced for the entire year's pickle supply were eaten up by the end of May because all of us were at our houses eating lunch and we wanted pickles with lunch. And uh, the places where they grow all those cucumbers, typically they, they typically don't plant and harvest until the fall. And so there were just no, no more cucumbers to be had. And I think there are lots of other examples like that in our supply chain. Um, you know, there are things like ethyl alcohol that, um, you know, that has a, a relatively long supply chain. Um, many producers like us had locked in the amount of ethyl alcohol that we needed for the year. And you have a surge like this, and that's used up by, you know, the end of the first or second quarter. There's this other Wall Street Journal headline that this reminds me of what you just explained. Why are there still not enough paper towels? It says, blame lean manufacturing. A decades-long effort to eke out more profit by keeping inventory low left many manufacturers unprepared when COVID-19 struck, and production is unlikely to ramp up significantly anytime soon. Carrie, I guess it goes back to your experience as a consultant and the business school days where they taught us that just-in-time inventory, like Dell, used to practice this very well. Don't keep anything uh, on stock. Don't deal with warehouses. Keep super lean logistics so you can exploit the turnover from receivables and uh, uh, payables and you know pass the savings on to your customers and pocket a lot of the difference in profit. That was really kind of uh, disrupted in this pandemic. Suddenly you have all sorts of stores looking for, uh, you know, chilled warehouses, looking to uh, make up what they had kind of lost in the new inventory thinking of the past 15 years. Yeah, I think that's right, Robin. I mean, the only thing I would um, I would maybe uh, be curious about uh, in your pers in your perspective is um, this idea of sort of companies doing this uh, because it's all about profit. So, you know, if I think about our Gojo perspective um, as a privately held uh, family enterprise, uh, we we are able to actually keep a lot more capacity than we use. So, like I said, we went from you know two shifts five days a week to three shifts seven days a week. So that's a bunch of extra capacity, and we also keep a huge uh, inventory of components so that at the beginning of the surge, we were able to 
produce a lot more a lot faster than if we had had to rely immediately on on the supply chain. Um, But many companies can't do that. Um, I think part of, certainly for us, part of the limitation is um, we are so innovative and so focused on investing in the future and continuing to develop brand new solutions that meet human problems that we constantly have to make trade-offs between maintaining more and more and more inventory and being able to invest in future growth. So the only the only uh, thing I would say to you is I think many of these companies are coming at this from a good place, uh, which is how do I use capital to continue to drive my business forward and be really innovative versus tying it up in inventory. But I absolutely agree with you uh, that that it does reduce reduce folks' uh, ability to react quickly. Carrie, could you just discuss kind of the hub and spoke system of your distribution? I mean, how many factories do you have running at full tilt? How many will you have in a few years? What is the ideal uh, system of distribution to have? Yeah, so in North America, Robin, uh, we are not very hubby and spokey. Uh, Before the pandemic, we had one really large manufacturing facility uh, that's our original uh, or our our oldest factory, uh, which is in Cuyahoga Falls, Uh, that factory uh, in Ohio. That factory uh, was producing uh, both soap and hand sanitizer. Uh, We had a second facility that we opened about five years ago in Worcester, Ohio, so both in Northeast Ohio. And uh, that facility was also uh, doing a lot of filling and finishing and is now producing sanitizer. And uh, and that's really the extent of our manufacturing before, uh, before the pandemic. Uh, Since the pandemic started, uh, we've actually doubled the number of facilities in Northeast Ohio. So we added a plant uh, in Maple Heights, Ohio, to make our Purell surface spray, which is a really awesome product if you haven't had a chance to use it. Um, And uh, we also have added a facility in Navarre, Ohio, uh, that does additional distribution, uh, storage, and also where we do some light assembly. So right now we have four facilities in Northeast Ohio, uh, and that's really our, uh, that's where all the Purell comes from in, in North America, Robin. Walk me through the things that you've learned since in that, in that critical ramp up. I mean, did you appreciate XYZ that, for example, train transport or truck transport had these quirks to it, these peculiarities to it. I mean, if I were sitting next to you at a wedding or a bat mitzvah, what are some of the things that you'd tell me, like, if, if I had only known? So I think uh, one big thing I've learned uh, is um, the power of Excel, Robin, and I'm not sure that I wanted to learn that. But uh, one of the things that happened really early, if you think about how businesses typically uh, take orders and process them and ship product, uh, that process starts with a customer telling you what they want and how much. And then you fulfill that order and you use the patterns of those orders to forecast what you're going to need and you plan against uh, against de- future demand in that way. Uh, this pandemic uh, created a set of circumstances where we actually had to reverse our process. So instead of letting customers just order and fulfilling what they needed, uh, we had to go into a world of hard allocation where we told customers what they could order. And we did that to make sure the product was getting to the right places uh, early on, so first responders and hospitals and grocery stores, uh, and later on to make sure that uh, it was getting distributed fairly uh, throughout the marketplace. Um, And so uh, we ended up breaking SAP, Robin. We really did. So SAP is not made to go that way. And so uh, the power of our teams getting together and figuring out how to use other methods uh, to to really run our business uh, was a huge learning. Uh, First of all, I think we learned that we could do it, which was pretty amazing. But I think we also learned how important it is to have the flexibility in our systems to be able to handle situations like this better next time. And as background on this, just to flesh it out for our listeners, by the middle of January, 
I mean, well before it was declared a pandemic, you had the first case in the U.S., and you guys saw that your sales and orders rose tenfold overnight. Uh, so by the end of January, the WHO had announced the state of emergency, and that was a true crisis on your hands. I mean, all eyes were on Purell. Suddenly, people were giving information that if you dare go to the grocery store, if you dare do these things, make sure to slather your bags and your hands and everything in Purell. I mean, there was a lot of, of confusion and and uh, uh, just thinking out loud as we fell into this pandemic. Absolutely, Robin. I think uh, when you when I go back in time to those early days in February and March, uh, our focus was really on, first of all, just making sure that we were getting Purell products to the people who needed them the most. And so that required us to really change the way we did business with our customers, uh, to go into a hard allocation model where we were uh, allocating product to the places uh, where people were on the front lines of the pandemic, and um, really to do that all offline and manually outside of SAP. So it was really a crazy, crazy time in those early days. Fill me in with some of these stories on things that were suddenly shorted. I mean, you, you again, in your mind's eye, if you could shift to full tilt overnight, it would in some ways be a dream scenario. But uh, there were so many bottlenecks, things as basic as, as bottles and caps that became hot items and were very hard to procure. Absolutely, Robin. So uh, where the shortages were most acutely felt earliest, I think, first of all, uh, we're in the in the world of bottles and bottles and pumps for uh, for our consumer uh, business. Um, Consumer businesses tend, uh, in our experience, when there's a surge, to experience that surge the most dramatically immediately. That's happened several times, including in H1N1. So we saw the biggest spike first at retail. And um, and if you think about our retail product, it's a bottle with a pump and then with uh, Purell hand sanitizer inside. And so uh, bottle, those bottles and pumps really are uh, iconic Purell bottles and pumps. And, uh, and so that's the place where we saw the, the initial shortage uh, first. Uh, one of the things that you have probably noticed if you've been uh, out and about uh, is how creative our team got with sourcing alternative bottles, pumps, and caps. So there are Purell bottles of many shapes and sizes out in the world right now. Uh, what I tell people every day is it's what's inside that counts and, uh, and there's only one Purell, right? Carrie, how do you even handle marketing in a situation like this? I was thinking about that when I saw that meme of the uh, the man wearing the gold chains and swimming in money, and it says, "This is the CEO of Purell or the founder of Purell." You must have you must have spit out your coffee when you saw something like this. That there's this immediate reflexive idea that you guys are are raking in the dough and you're just laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, yes, it's a it's a flush time. It's a growth time, but. You are also in in a bit of crisis mode, right? You're trying to shift the company into uh, dimensions of of production that were unimaginable just six or seven months ago. Yes, Robin. So I have to admit that I probably received uh, that meme by text message uh, 85 to 100 times the days uh, around its uh, first uh, when it was first showed up online. One of the things I have to tell you about Gojo as a 75 year old family enterprise in Akron, Ohio is that uh, we don't like to be the center of attention for who we are. Uh, we don't even really wanna be the center of attention for what we do. Uh, we want to fulfill our purpose, which is to save lives and make life better and to do that in a way that's really aligned with our values. So uh, you asked me about marketing. Um, I, you know, if you go back and look at our presence uh, out in the world during this pandemic, uh, we have not thought at all for a second about marketing. We have really been focused on communication. 
And that communication has been with our distributor partners who are doing their best to get product to the hospitals and to the schools and to the restaurants where it's needed. Communication with our team members who have been working 24-7 around the clock, uh, very much giving up a lot of their personal lives to, to make as much Purell product as they can. So uh, this has been the summer and the uh, spring of communication uh, and probably the, the least amount of marketing we've ever done in the company's history. Carrie Jaros, CEO of Gojo Industries, that makes Purell. I have to ask you uh, that the 50-ton elephant in the room right now is Amazon, especially with people at home not wanting to go to the store. They're buying non-perishable products left and right from Amazon to a lesser extent, Walmart.com. Everybody's kind of had to ramp up the contactless delivery game. What's the extent of your relationship with Amazon? I understand that you're a decidedly B2B company, as you were describing before. And what will the relationship evolve into? So Robin, uh, you know, Gojo has had open distribution since our company's beginnings. Uh, we are really focused on getting our Purell products in the hands of people who need them most. And uh, we are, we're pretty open about working with many, many, many different distributor partners and retailers to do that. Uh, Amazon is absolutely one of those partners. And, uh, you know, there are Purell products on Amazon today. Uh, I just got a text from someone who, uh, who purchased some, who was delighted to receive them. Uh, and so, you know, just like I'm sure you view Amazon as an important, uh, an important channel uh, in our economy, we see it as an important channel. Um, and, you know, we hope that, uh, we hope that consumers are, are, who, who choose to shop there can continue to get our Purell products through Amazon. Now, is it a blessing or a curse that you've had so many copycat brands come out, especially when you look at the the major uh, consumer goods multinationals, which I think a lot of people would assume that you're a part of a Unilever or a Colgate Palmolive or a Procter & Gamble, but in fact, you are a you're a small kind of pure play company still in Ohio. Uh, they've just been able to turn this on because of, uh, as you talk about, this infinite demand. I've seen Suave, which I hadn't heard from in 20 years as a kind of a conditioner brand, uh, suddenly in front of your face at the grocery aisle as an antibacterial. I've seen all manner of liquor brands reinvent overnight, sometimes with government assistance to become makers of, of, of uh, you know, emergency antibacterial lotion. Yeah. So as you said, Robin, one of the biggest myths about Purell is that we're part of a large multinational like a PNG. Um, but indeed, we are a 75-year-old family enterprise in Akron, Ohio. Uh, and all we do is make uh, soap, Purell hand sanitizer, and surface spray, uh, and, uh, and you know our various wipes products. Um, you asked if it's a blessing or a curse. Uh, all of the copycats who have come into our space. Um, and, you know, this is a perfect moment to go back to our Gojo purpose, which is saving lives and making life better. Um, I think to the degree that there were uh, high quality, safe and effective hand sanitizers available to people during this pandemic who couldn't get them otherwise, um, I think we're delighted that, that there was more product available, for sure. Um, our number one priority is making sure people have access to safe and effective hand sanitizer during a time like this. And so, um, and so certainly we uh, are thrilled that other folks showed up. Um, as you may know, uh, the FDA did rela relax some of its requirements around ingredients and hand sanitizer uh, to, to reduce the barriers to entry during this time so that, so that companies like distilleries and others could get into the hand sanitizer game and help out with uh, all of that demand. Um, and, you know, I think uh, that, that, that that's probably a good thing. Um, however, and I say this 
I think this is really important, Robin. You know, hand sanitizer is an over-the-counter FDA-regulated drug. And uh, the reason it's an over-the-counter FDA-regulated drug is because safety and efficacy are really important. Uh, When people use a hand sanitizer, they have an expectation around performance. And so um, I, you know, I think it's really important that uh, FDA and uh, everybody else who's involved in um, regulating uh, the hand sanitizer industry makes sure that the products that stick around really deliver on the safety and efficacy that are expected of an over-the-counter FDA-regulated drug. Carrie Jaros, CEO of Gojo, maker of Purell. If you're sitting in front of a map of the world, let's say start with North America right now, and you're going to give me a you know, five or 10-minute tutorial on what's involved in truly ramping up this company, uh, what would you be pointing at? What would you be discussing? I mean, what are points of distribution? Where are the factories that you're going to be putting up? Uh, how did you raise this, this immense amount of, of capital in a short period of time, all kind of in the fog of the crisis of this pandemic? So, Robin, uh, I think it's always a great exercise to look at uh, what you're doing as a business and then ask yourself if I had to do it at uh, two or three or five X how I'm doing it today, where would the constraints be for me? Um, For us, the the very first constraint uh, is turning on our existing factories at full capacity. And so, you know, we did that last February uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the second constraint pretty immediately is raw materials and components, because if your factories are running at that full capacity, you're going to use a lot more inputs than you were planning to use when you were running below full capacity. So that's sort of the next step is really activating all of your suppliers to make sure that uh, you're getting the bottles and the pumps and the caps and the ethanol and the uh, other ingredients that are in our hand sanitizers and soaps and surface spray. And so uh, that sort of is the second step. And then uh, those folks have to do the same thing with their supply chains. So if you think about the pump maker, the pump maker has to make sure that uh, they're running their equipment 24-7 and they they have the labor to do that. Uh, And then they need to make sure they have the resin right, to do that. Uh, And so that same uh, approach happens throughout the entire supply chain on every single element that goes into our Purell products. Um, It's been a real exercise in constraint uh, constraint busting. And um, at at some point, we decided that we believed that, uh, you know, to fulfill our purpose of saving lives and making life better, uh, our existing filling and, uh, and other uh, types of manufacturing capacity weren't going to be enough to deliver on the sustained increase in, in, um, in demand that we expect to see coming out of this pandemic. What are the steps in kicking this thing into full gear at the very outset when everybody says, OK, Carrie, go? So uh, we created a team, Robin, uh, and I'll tell you the name of the team because I think you'll get a kick out of it. So uh, we created a team uh, that was known as the Potato Team. And the potato team kicked off and revved up, and there are two sides to the potato team. There is a demand side and a supply side. And so the demand side was all about how do we um, help our distributor partners and end users get product to exactly the places where it's needed the very most in the fairest and, um, and most purpose-aligned way we can. And so we had a team working on that all day, every day. And then really in the other side of the same room, uh, sometimes divided by a divider and eventually over Microsoft Teams, uh, we had a team working on supply. How do we absolutely maximize supply of those uh, products that are needed the very most? And uh, that included constantly revisiting every one of the constraints. And the second we beat one constraint, Robin, 
a new one would pop up because that's how it works. So the second that we had enough bottles and pumps, then the constraint becomes ethanol. The second we have enough ethanol, then there's a new constraint. And so we worked through every one of those constraints one at a time um, and then often had to come back and re-loop and work on, on some of the earlier constraints again. And that process happened over the course of the whole summer at the same time as we were making, uh, making investments and placing orders for more equipment and additional capacity. At the same time, what were the major retailers telling you? The, let's say the brick and mortar players, the the likes of the drug stores, or the 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 targets, the WalMarts, the grocery stores that are saying, "I I can't I can't even you know the instant I stock this stuff when I get it, it's gone as soon as I open the store in the morning." So, Robin, one of the benefits of being in business for seventy five years uh, and being in business with great partners, both on the distributor side and on the retailer side, is they really understood what we were going through. And they trusted us that we were doing absolutely everything we could to get them product. Uh, what that meant is in the early days when we had to go on allocation and we had to prioritize first responders, hospitals, schools, grocery stores, when we had to do that in those early days, our distributor partners helped us do that. Many of them actually reworked their entire IT systems to be able to do that. And the retailers understood when we needed to go dark at retail uh, to, to make sure that that product was getting to hospitals, for example, and to, and to first responders. Um, you asked me what they were saying. So uh, they were saying, we understand, we support you. And as soon as you have product available, we want to be back in stock. Um, the other thing I'll tell you is that those retailers worked with us, and many of them actually set up their own procedures in store to limit the number of bottles of Purell that any one consumer could come in and buy, uh, again, in an effort to sort of get as much Purell to as many people who really needed it as possible. I mean, it got pretty ridiculous if you go back to the various social media timelines. There were people hashtagging Purell and telling you that, hey, look, I noticed this at a Dollar General store. I noticed it at a Target. If you rush now, I mean, never in your wildest dreams or nightmares could you have predicted that this would have been coveted. I mean, there were people joking about a Purell blue label, like a Johnny Walker type thing. We were getting care packages and friends are like, you know, I got a special stash of Purell. I'm going to hook you up. Uh, and indeed, I mean, it's amazing for you to tell me that uh, as you realized that this was a pandemic and this was happening, you've gone from a couple of hundred million doses of hand sanitizer manufactured weekly to a billion a week. Uh, now your new capacity is planning for a billion doses a day. Is that right? That's right, Robin. That's uh, that's the trajectory. And uh, you're right. I never in my wildest uh, imagination uh, thought that Purell would be uh, such a scarce resource uh, relative to the demand for it. Um, and, you know, in, in the days before the pandemic, people would send me pictures of our soap dispensers all over the world. Uh, frequently, uh, they would be like a soap dispenser that was in a restroom, and I would be saying things like, please make sure that you're just taking pictures of the soap dispenser. Uh, and my phone would blow up with just, you know, text messages of soap dispensers all over the world. Um, and you're right, that has totally changed. Now I get pictures of Purell bottles the second they're spotted in the wild. Um, and, uh, you know, we hear stories all the time of people, you know, picking them up and taking them off of tables when they're uh, in public places. So uh, this has been a pretty wild journey. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Carrie Jarrow, president and CEO of Gojo Industries, maker of Purell, which is, as we know now, as 2020 has taught us, it's pretty much synonymous with hand sanitizer. Carrie, in the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, I'd love for you to turn the table, turn the mics. What should we 
be asking, what are the things that that you wish people out there knew? Uh, what, what are the things that are getting short shrifted that uh, I guess would kind of make this transition from a pre-COVID to a post-COVID new normal uh, more mainstream, more understood among among the masses out there? So, Robin, uh, you know, thanks for asking. Things that I wish people knew about us uh, in our products, but they don't. Uh, first of all, I wish people knew that uh, Purell hand sanitizer uh, is not more drying than soap. One of the myths that I hear all the time uh, from people is that sanitizer is it dries out their hands, and they don't like to use it because it dries their hands. If you think about what you're doing when you use hand sanitizer, you are applying hand sanitizer. It's killing the germs on your hands, and everything else is staying on your hands. That includes the lipids, the fats that are in your skin that are staying there. Uh, when you wash your hands, you actually are washing away those lipids. So hand sanitizer is actually uh, a much, much better solution if you don't have any visible soil on your hands. Uh, that it keeps your skin uh, moist and conditioned uh, versus using versus using just plain soap and water. So Robin, many people think we're part of some big consumer packaged goods conglomerate, uh, and they don't realize that we're actually a 75-year-old family enterprise in Akron, Ohio, that was founded by uh, Goldie and Jerry Lipman uh, to keep to get factory workers' hands clean after a day of making uh, rubber products. So people don't think of us that way, and I wish they did because I think uh, they would understand us as a company, and they would understand the uh, the integrity and the passion and the science that we bring to our products in a totally different way. Something else, Robin, that I wish people knew about us is that, um, you know, we historically have been much more of a B2B company than a consumer company. So people think of Purell as part of some big consumer packaged goods conglomerate and that almost everything we sell, we sell to consumers. And in fact, the opposite is true. Um, we're a 75-year-old family enterprise in Akron, Ohio. And uh, before the pandemic, the vast majority of what we sold was soap. And most of that went to businesses, not to consumers. So, you know, Purell is an incredible, incredible product. It's, in fact, uh, the category-defining hand sanitizer. We invented it in the 80s. Um, but most Purell actually goes into professional settings. We're the number one brand in hospitals. Uh, Purell goes into, into office buildings. It goes into schools. It goes into churches and synagogues. Purell is really uh, a product that's often provided by facilities to show the people who are visiting them that they care or uh, that are, is used because it's the most safe and effective solution in high-risk environments. You know, and it's so ubiquitous now. Any store that you walk into, any restaurant that you walk into, it's kind of hard to imagine a world without ubiquitous antibacterial lotion everywhere. What are going to be some of the other things that I think are are part of this new post-COVID normal? I mean, your your predictions. So, you know, we really believe here at Gojo that um, the world is never going to be the same after after COVID. I think uh, this has gone on for long enough and it has been a significant enough disruption in all of our lives. We've made some new habits like having really good attention to hand hygiene that we'll keep. I think we understand the importance of having clean hands and clean surfaces um, and that that actually allows us to engage with the world. So, um, you know, what will be different is I'm sure social distancing will go away. I'm sure there will be a time when we don't wear masks. But I actually believe that the use of hand sanitizer will stay the same or increase after that uh, because hand sanitizer really is the ultimate enabler of social connection. It's really all about social connection and letting people engage with the world around them and with other people. Hmm. Well, of course, the handshake. We haven't even talked about that. That's something that you're going to have to get over the squeamishness of, of everything we were taught this year to go back to shaking hands with people. 
That's right, Robin. And you know what? When when people are ready to start shaking hands again, Purell will be there. We will be there to support shaking hands. And then closing, if you could go back to January and give a piece of advice to yourself, or again, it goes back to that crystal ball thing, because I'm fascinated by this situationally. Here's a person who you were a, uh, you were a consultant before, you uh, knew operations, you thought you knew all these things, and yet in a real world in situ, in vivo situation, it's not like that uh, simulation of the beer company thing in business school where you had kegs rolling off and you couldn't handle the capacity. It's, it's very, very different, and it's got a thousand different moving parts. Yeah, so Robin, one of our Gojo values is always learning, and uh, we really think about ourselves as learners, not knowers, and uh, we're always seeking insights from everyone and everywhere. Um, so I don't even have to go back in time. I can tell you what we're thinking about now to make sure that if this ever happens again, we're ready. Um, the first thing uh, is we are making sure that we have not just the capacity to ramp up, not just the components on hand to ramp up for a short period of time, but that we understand what it would take to, to stay at a sustained surge level for a long period of time, both in terms of manufacturing and in terms of our systems and operations and in terms of our team members and their well-being. And, you know, we will have a playbook for that. We are all about the playbook and we will have a playbook for what it takes to stay at a sustained surge like this. Um, and we'll make sure that we're ready. So, you know, Robin, I don't think anybody in a new president and CEO role uh, could imagine two weeks into their job uh, being faced with this global pandemic. Um, what I will tell you is that I, not for one second did I ever feel alone. So I had the third generation uh, Camphor family member, Marcella Camphor Rolnick, uh, who is the executive chair of Gojo, uh, right by my side the whole time. We have an incredible leadership team, and we've also benefited from having her dad, Joe Camphor, who was CEO for many decades, uh, and his partner, Mark Lerner, who was president for many decades, right by our sides advising us. It's been a, a tremendous uh, example of what we at, Lo at Gojo call molecular leadership, uh, where no one hero has to do it on his or her own. Carrie Jaros, president and CEO of Gojo Industries. You were named president late last year, late 2019. You knew you were going to become president, but you ascended just two weeks into this into this pandemic. Uh, president and CEO of Gojo Industries, which makes Purell. Thank you so much for joining us. You're always welcome on the show. Thanks, Robin. I appreciate being here. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy the show on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. And we'll be coming soon to WERA 96.7 FM in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C. Follow along on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.